Thanks, everybody. That was very kind. Really kind. We are uh, in the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn it to Romans chapter 7. We're going to show the text on the screen also. We're in the part of the letter where Paul is answering questions that might be raised after hearing about the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel itself, the good news, is that Jesus Christ died and rose again to save us from our sins. And when you put your faith in Him as Savior, you are declared righteous by God. And your performance, your actual behavior, whether that's good or bad, doesn't come into the equation at all. God accepts you totally on the basis of Jesus' perfect life credited to your account. But that raises a question. What then do we do with the law of God? What exactly is our relationship to all of God's rules and standards for our lives? Do we still need to keep those or not? How should we think about the moral commands of God that are written in the Scriptures? Because Paul said in chapter 6, verse 14, that Christians are not under law, but under grace. So what does that mean? (laughs) That we're not under it, but we're under grace now. Well, chapter 7 is the answer, and so we're going to spend a good bit of time in chapter 7 to understand what is our relationship now to the laws of God as Christians declared righteous. We'll be looking into that. Um, We're going to look at verses 1 to 6 today, and it's going to take two messages to cover this material. Uh, We won't cover it, but uh, I think in two messages we'll get our minds around it a little bit. So let's read Romans 7, 1 to 6, and then ask for the Lord to open its meaning to us. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband died, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit." and not in the old way of the written code. Let's just pray here. This is dense material that you've presented to us, Lord. 
through the apostle and yet so full of life if we could get our minds around it if we can get to the simplicity and the other side of complexity so we ask you to help us get there um, open our minds to understand this illustration in here about marriage and this thing called dead to the law and how it affects our lives and we ask it in jesus name amen I'm going to read something that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his preface to his book on Romans, chapter 7. It took a whole book to capture all of his sermons on this chapter. And it's going to sound scandalous, and you're going to think he's off his rocker, maybe. Um, I think it's probably going to produce that kind of result in some of us here, but it's true. It really does capture the scandal of the gospel. Here's what he said. I'm about to make a statement which is almost certainly going to be misunderstood. I make it in order to expound the passage. I shall be slanderously reported for having said it, even as the apostle himself was. I put it like this. It does not matter how deeply, how violently you may sin as a believer. You should never come again under condemnation. If you do, it is because you have not understood your relationship to the law and you have put yourself back under law. I say again, that however much you may sin, and whatever the character of the sin, you must never put yourself back under the law. You must never have that sense of condemnation again. Does that sound scandalous? <laughs> he says you can sin deeply, even violently, as a genuine Christian. And no matter how bad the thing is that you did, God will not condemn you for it. You won't lose his acceptance. You won't lose your salvation. You are still his beloved son or daughter that he rejoices over with singing, according to Zephaniah 3.17. That should sound scandalous, I think, but it is true. According to the Apostle Paul and according to God himself, this is how things stand in your life if you have died to the law, according to verse 4, if you have been released from the law, according to verse 6. The Christian does not need to fear falling short of God's commands because in Christ, God's law is fulfilled for you. That's what Paul is going to tell us here. That's what he argues for in this passage that I hope will become clear. I won't say this is an easy thing to grasp. It's a deep passage, but I do know that to grasp this is essential to real freedom and joy in the Christian life. If you think you're saved by grace, but that you keep yourself in God's grace by doing everything right, then you're going to live an up and down life. You're going to be happy one day when you're doing well and miserable the next when you're not doing well. 
And the Lord doesn't want that for us. He wants us to be at peace because, according to Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have it. The Christian does not need to fear falling short of God's commands because in Christ his law is fulfilled for you. So let's look at God's word to see how Paul argues for that. I want to start by just looking at what he says at the end of verse 1. He says the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Let's take that apart a little bit. He says the law is binding. So what law is he talking about there? Well, certainly the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other rules that are given to the nation of Israel, because he's writing this letter to a church that has a lot of Jewish people in it, Jewish believers, and they're totally familiar with the Old Testament. But I don't think Paul has only that in mind. He has in mind the universal moral will of God for all people, whether that's found in the Old Testament or now in the New Testament or written on the consciences of non-believers. Because back in chapter 2, Paul spoke about non-Jews who, even though they do not have the law, he says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, the God who made the world has given each of us a conscience, and we inherently know that there is a God and that He's got rules. <laughs> And that he has the right to enforce those rules. This is all the law of God. The, these rules that we know inherently, maybe not in all their details, but we know there's a God there. These rules are binding on us. That is, his moral commands have authority. They require our obedience. And as such, they have penalties for disobedience. So rules like you shall not steal, or flee immorality, or love one another are rules that are binding on us. They, the authority behind them is God, and he says there's a penalty for noncompliance, and the ultimate penalty is death, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, and that's pointing to an eternal death under God's judgment. But here's the catch now, according to Paul. He says the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. If you die, then the law is not binding on you. It can no longer threaten you with its judgments. You can't threaten a dead person with jail time for not paying his taxes. Although, maybe in the IRS world, that's been tried. You don't arrest a corpse at a funeral. You know, Joe, you were bad in this life. So sorry, you don't go in the ground, you go to the prison. The dead are truly not concerned about the law anymore. There is nothing the law can do to them now. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. After that, it poses no threat. What Paul will go on to say is that this is the situation of believers in Jesus Christ. 
Believers have died to the law, verse 4. That is, they are like the dead man over whom the law has no more jurisdiction, no more power to condemn. Which means that if you break the law, if you disobey God's moral will for you, His holy standard, as a believer, it cannot condemn you any more than it could condemn a dead man. Because God is the authority behind the law. And He will not require of you the wages of sin, which is death, if you're truly His, if you're truly a believer. And that's what Paul means when he says we are not under the law. Now that raises all kinds of questions. So we died to the law? How is that true? I'm still alive. (laughs) And God is still there, and the law is still there, and I'm still breaking it every day. So surely he's not okay with me doing that, and I, I must still be under the law in some sense, right? So in anticipation of all those questions, Paul gives an illustration to help us to understand where he's going with this. He gives us a picture of our relationship to the law in the analogy of marriage and in a death in a marriage. And so that's what verses 2 and 3 are about. I'll summarize what the analogy says, and then we'll read the, the text. The analogy says that death ends a marriage relationship and makes possible another marriage. Death ends a marriage relationship and makes possible another marriage. So verses 2 and 3, he says, A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, this isn't a comprehensive teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage. That's not what Paul's interested in here. To answer those questions, you need to bring in some other scriptures. Um, But that's not what Paul's interested in here. Paul is just drawing on the general truth that marriage is supposed to be an until-death-do-us-part relationship, um, according to the law of marriage. He says, a married woman is bound by law to her husband. That means he has rights to her faithfulness. She must reserve herself for him. She must not live with another man. If she's unfaithful to him, she will be called an adulteress. This guilt will attach itself to her. She'll bear her shame, and she'll bear the penalty for it. In the Old Testament, that meant being stoned to death, which is why the men in John chapter 8 picked up stones. They brought this woman to Jesus and said, We caught her. We caught her in the act of adultery, and they're ready to stone her. But Jesus intervenes on her behalf, and he tells her to go and sin no more. We shouldn't think that he was lessening the penalty for sin. He just said, you're the wrong people to inflict the judgment. (laughs) Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, could have inflicted that judgment, but he came into this world not to condemn but to save sinners. So a married woman 
is bound by law to her husband and will bear the penalty for unfaithfulness. But, Paul says, it is not adultery if her husband dies and she marries another man. Why? Because death ends the first marriage. As far as the marriage is concerned, the first one, she's done all that she was supposed to do. The law is satisfied. She is free to be with another man. The first husband no longer has any authority to command her to make her keep her vows. That's over. So that's the illustration. Now, how does it apply to us in the law? Here's what Paul has to say, beginning verse 4. I'm going to summarize it this way. Death ended your marriage to the law so that you could be married to Christ. Death ended your marriage to the law so that you could be married to Christ. Verse 4 starts this way. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So let's stop there. Paul says the law is like the husband in that illustration. And you were married to it when you were an unbeliever, before you knew Jesus. The law was your husband who had rights over you. If you broke the law, you would be guilty. You would be subject to the law's penalty, to the wages of death. And this was an until-death-do-us-part relationship. The problem for us is that the law is not going to die as long as we're in this world, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5.18, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So your marriage to the law is not going to end in this life. The law is going to outlive you. <laughs> that sounds like bad news, doesn't it? Because the reality is we've been unfaithful to our husband, the law, many, many times. The law says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It can't be half-hearted. It has to be wholehearted all the time. I haven't done that. No one has done that. So it looks like we have to receive our wages, that the penalty for our unfaithfulness to our husband, the law, has to be, has to be issued because we're bound to the marriage contract. But there's one way out of the marriage that legally frees us from the contract, Paul says. It's if you die. <laughs> Your death, your death would end the marriage to the law. Your death would free you from the threat of the law with its legal demands for your unfaithfulness because the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Verse 1. And Paul says that's exactly what happened the moment you put your faith in Christ. You died. Verse 4. You have died to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. He means the crucifixion. You see, Paul has argued in the letter to the Romans that the believer is united to Jesus in such a deep way that what actually happened to Jesus on the cross legally happened to you. And what he did on the cross was take your sins on himself. 
He represented the sinful, unfaithful you before God in the court of his law. And God carried out the full penalty of the law on Jesus by condemning him to death. The father crushed his son under the full weight of God's of the law's penalty. And in doing it to Jesus, he did it to you. You died. You were condemned. The sinful, unregenerate you was punished with death. So as far as the first marriage is concerned, the marriage to the law, the law is satisfied because you died for your sins. You received the wages. And now there's nothing more for the law to do to you in God's courtroom. God is satisfied because Jesus atoned for your sins by his death. The law can't It can no longer do anything to a dead man. The threat of condemnation is gone. Its rule over you is finished. Paul uses another analogy in verse 6 to say much the same thing. But this time it's the language of discharge from an obligation to obey. He says in verse 6, But now we are released from the law, or discharged, having died to that which held us captive. So think of it like a soldier in the military. And he gets discharged from duty. He fills out his four-year term or whatever. And he's discharged. He, he gets his papers, and he's walking out of the office on the base. And, and as he's walking across the grounds, his, his sergeant meets him. And he starts ordering him around. He says, Soldier! Go get your weapon and your gear and fall into formation with your platoon. And at first the soldier goes, yes, sir, you know, out of habit. But then he realizes, hey, wait a minute, I'm discharged. (laughs) I'm a civilian now. I don't have to listen to you, Sarge. (laughs) Paul says you've been released from the law like that. You've been discharged from its claims on you. It can't order you around anymore. It can't penalize you for not keeping it. Why? Because it already punished you with death for not keeping it. You died to the law when Christ died for your sins. And Paul says it in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, I'm going to make application of this freedom from the curse of the law a little bit, in a little bit. But it's only half the story. I'll just mention the second half now to complete the picture, but it's going to be the content of the whole next sermon. (laughs) Here's the rest of the story, and I'll finish verse 4 or take it a little farther. It says, "'You also have died to the law through the body of Christ.'" so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. I'll stop there. You see, Jesus didn't just die for your sins so that you could die to the old husband, the law. Jesus died for your sins so you could have a new husband, himself. You died to the law so that you may belong to another, to him, to Jesus, who was raised from the dead. Christ's death 
ended your marriage to the law so that you could be married to him. That is, that you could enter into a personal and loving relationship with the resurrected and living Savior that's as comprehensive as marriage is in our human experience. And it's a totally different marriage than the marriage to the law. All that the old husband, the law, could do was condemn you every time you were unfaithful. Every time you said or did anything wrong, it kept telling you every day, you don't meet God's standard. You aren't good enough. You deserve God's judgment. The problem was that the old husband was always right. (laughs) But he could never make you righteous. All he could do was tell you what to do and make you feel guilty when you didn't do it. But the new husband, Christ, isn't like that. This husband gives you his righteousness. In union with him by faith, he gives you his perfect record of law-keeping. We call that imputed righteousness. In union with Jesus, what's actually true of Jesus is legally true of you. And Jesus lived a perfect life, sinless Therefore, God counts you as having lived a perfect life, sinless, even though you are still sinning every day. And this is also an until death do us part marriage, except that in this one, neither spouse will ever die. (laughs) Because it's marriage to him who has been raised from the dead, never to die again. And in union with him, you will be raised from the dead, never to die again. To be joined to Jesus by faith is to live in a continuous and eternal state of acceptance by God, being the beloved of God, being delighted in by God. The situation of being dead to the threat of the law in its accusations and its penalties is permanent. If you are joined to Jesus by faith no matter what sins you will get into. Because in Christ, you already paid the penalty that the law demands for your sin. And in Christ, you've completely complied with the obedience that the law demands. And that's why Martin Lloyd-Jones was so bold as to say that it does not matter how deeply, how violently you may sin as a believer. You should never again come under condemnation. The law cannot condemn you anymore. You are released from that threat. Now we have to make application here. We have to see what kind of a difference this makes in real life. Because maybe by now your head is swimming a little bit with all of that analysis. It, it made my head swim to write it. <laughs> I kept going like, how do I say that? Because you could say that wrong 10 different ways. <laughs> and I hope I didn't pick any of those options. But we have to see how this changes our approach to life. Because this is intended to free us. This is intended to produce relief and peace and security in God's love and God's mercy. So let me put the application in the form of three statements that I think are true in light of the fact that you've been released from the law and you now belong to Jesus. And I'll explain each one. 
Here's the first statement. Fear of doing things wrong is probably a sign of putting yourself back under the law. Fear of doing things wrong. Now, I say probably because there are some fears which have a different source and are in some cases a natural reaction to potential dangers. For example, if you get caught in a storm on a Colorado 14er, the next decision you make could end your life if it's the wrong one. (laughs) And there ought to be a little bit of fear involved in that, naturally. And it has nothing to do with whether you're violating God's law or not. There's also a healthy fear of the Lord that should be part of our lives, which is a respect for the power and the authority of the God who rules over all things. It's like the respect that you have for a mountain storm that you watch from the safety of a shelter that you found when you were in it. Your fear is this sober admiration of an awesome power from the vantage point of safety. That's the fear of the Lord. And that's good to have. And that's right. But what I'm talking about here is this general fear that some of us might have. That I have to keep God's commandments or else. And you fill in the blank of what or else is, but you are afraid of that. And that fear is your motivation for obedience. To use an illustration, when I was about 9 or 10 years old, my brothers and I were frequently unsupervised after my dad and mom divorced, and we lived with just my dad, and we were destructive. I remember a time when one of us got shoved into a wall so hard that it left a one-foot hole in the wall, just exactly the size of one of our backsides. (laughs) And it was in the living room. It would be the first thing you'd see when my dad opened the door when he came home, would be this massive hole in the wall. And then I remember hearing the words, probably from my sister, you're in trouble. (laughs) You're in trouble. Fear of my dad's anger and his leather belt across my backside was a powerful motivator to not do things like that. I took that same kind of fear into my relationship with God. Once I accepted Christ, I discovered a whole new world of rules that I never knew about. Things like Psalm 119.9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Okay, I better keep my way pure or else I'm in trouble with God. Or Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay, I better start making disciples or else God's belt is going to come out and he's going to thrash me with it if I don't live up to his expectation. Fear of doing things wrong was a major motivation in my Christian life. Fear that somehow my performance was still what either gained or lost the approval of God. 
Now, those commands I mentioned are good and right things to do. They remain God's will for us, but the problem was in my motivation. It was fear-based. It was chasing God's acceptance by doing everything right and not doing anything wrong, like I often did with my earthly father. And that results in an up-and-down relationship with God. One day, you're feeling pretty good about your relationship with Him because you're having a good day of obedience. Another day you're feeling pretty bad because you fell short. So you're up and down a lot. But friends, if we're dead to the law, if we're released from the penalty for not keeping it, then doing something wrong cannot condemn us in God's sight. We cannot lose His love and acceptance and His promise of eternal life. You can't. Yes, there can be consequences that follow from disobedience. The Lord will often let us experience the pain of our sinful choices, but consequences are far different from condemnation. Hebrews 12.6 reminds us the Lord disciplines the one He loves. Discipline is a sign of God's love, not a sign that He condemns us. He doesn't condemn us. He never condemns us because His law is satisfied in His Son's life and death. So if you do something out of a sense that I have to do this righteous and godly thing or else, then probably it's a sign you've put yourself back under the law. You don't realize you've been released from its penalty, that you're under grace, which is the unmerited favor of God to sinners who deserve only wrath. Here's another statement. This is somewhat related to the first one, and I'll say it in a different way. You don't get rid of a guilty conscience by trying to do better, but by remembering what Christ has already done for you. You don't get rid of a guilty conscience by trying to do better, but by remembering what Christ has already done for you. This is something that was a revelation to me when I attended the pastor's college, and after the week that Jerry Bridges taught on grace and sanctification, it was basically a week of rediscovering the gospel message for Christians. <laughs> I went to the pastor's college with a load of guilt for all the ways that I failed as a dad, as a husband, as a Bible vocational pastor, as a Christian in general. I remember telling a guy that I met with on occasion that I felt like a walking billboard of sin. My, my own failures were always much more obvious to me than any of God's grace in my life. And as a result, I was this angry, pessimistic, cynical guy most of the time. When I got to the pastor's college, Jim Britt, the pastor to the students, took me for a walk. He asked the question, Mark, what are you hoping to get out of the pastor's college? And I said, Jim, I just want to learn how to live. Which meant, I know I'm not experiencing the kind of joy and peace that seem to, to be promised to believers in Jesus. Something is wrong with me. And I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to fix it. Well, that's something that I found out after the week with Jerry Bridges was that I had been trying to atone for something that had already been atoned for. 
I was trying to get rid of my guilty conscience by being a better Christian, a better dad, a better everything, because I had this thought that the law still condemns me. And I won't feel uncondemned and loved by God until I perform better. The way I found freedom was by learning again, and it seemed like for the first time, that I died to the law through the body of Christ. God's law is satisfied. God is satisfied. God loves me now as I am now. He has a genuine affection for me now because in Christ He sees me as the perfect law keeper. And He sees you that way too if you're joined to Christ by faith. So friends, if you have this cloud over you, this nagging voice that keeps condemning you for all your failures, don't try to silence that voice by resolving to do better tomorrow. Because all you'll really be doing is trying to get righteousness from the law instead of by remembering that in Christ you already have a perfect righteousness. Trying to do better to get rid of guilt is actually a form of spiritual adultery. It's running back to the old husband, the law, to get something that your new husband, Christ, has already given you. Instead of doing that, when guilt raises its head, remember what Christ did on the cross. He released you from the condemnation of the law, and that's why God is genuinely for you all the time. One more statement, and then we'll close. The main goal of the Christian life is not law-keeping, but loving Christ. The main goal of the Christian life is not law-keeping, but loving Christ. I'll be short here because this is something to say more about next time. Here's what I mean. If you're really dead to the law, if it can no longer threaten you with its demands and penalties then keeping it isn't the main goal of the Christian life. It would have to be if you really needed to keep it to be right with God. Every day you'd have to resolve again, I need to do this stuff. I can't slip up because I have to meet the standard. But if the law is satisfied as far as God is concerned, then that doesn't need to be our focus anymore. Now the focus is Jesus Christ. The focus is our new husband, the one who gives life. We died to the law in order to belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. To be a Christian is to replace law with Jesus as our focus. And what we'll find out next time is that by making Jesus our focus, by loving him, by delighting in him, by finding joy in him, is actually the only thing that will produce genuine law-keeping. It's the only thing that produces good fruit in our lives. Because verse 6, second half, goes on to say that, if, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Fruit, good fruit, refers to a godly, God-glorifying, obedience-loving life. And that's something the law could never do for us. But it is something Jesus will do and that he does do more and more as we press into knowing and loving Jesus. The Christian life isn't about law-keeping. It's about loving Christ. And by loving Christ, that's where freedom and fruitfulness come from.
So we're going to close with a hymn called Debtor to Mercy. So if the worship team wants to come up here, that would be great. And we're going to sing this because we want to sing the truth of Romans 7 to ourselves in response. There's a verse that I want to draw your attention to here. It says, The judgments of your holy law with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. So do you feel that? Do you feel that the judgments of God's holy law can have nothing to do with you in your union with Christ? Do you feel the warmth and the affection of God for you because His Son's obedience secured your righteousness and because His blood satisfied the penalty for your transgressions? The realization of these things is essential to our true freedom in the Christian life. So let's sing it, and if you don't feel it, that's not a surprise. It takes time for the scandal of the gospel to penetrate our hearts. I'm still growing in it, but singing the truths that this song has will help us to feel it. So let's do Let me pray first. Lord, I just thank you that these things are true, and now even through this song, Soak it into our hearts. Release us from whatever cloud was over us coming in here, and may it continue to release us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.